Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. All right, so when I was uh, preparing for this particular sermon, I came across a John Piper sermon from 1992. And so when I saw the day, it hit me that that particular sermon was preached when I was two years old. And so I was thinking, wow, it's amazing that these things that I'm about to talk about are not things that, you know, someone came up with yesterday, are not even things that happened 30 years ago, right? This particular, you know, the sermon I was looking at happened 30 years ago. But these doctrines that we are about to, dis- to discuss, these truths that we're going to discuss, they have actually been around for a couple thousand years. And some of them have been around for even longer than that. I mean, some of them were even given at the moment of creation. Right? We're, eventually, we're going to talk about biblical manhood and womanhood, which we know that is a, something that was given at creation. And ultimately, these doctrines that we're going to talk about points, point us to truths about God that are eternal. Right, so the way we have put them as doctrines, yeah, maybe maybe they have been developed as people think about some of these realities, but ultimately, these doctrines are pointing us back to truths that are eternal, right? Because God is eternal and the truth about him is eternal. So while these truths are eternal, we recognize that we as humans in our attempts to understand them because we are finite creatures, that means that we are not infinite like God is, and our understanding is finite, then sometimes we have a hard time understanding the truths about God. Sometimes we, a lot of the times we are prone to failure to understand them. Sometimes it is because of our own sinfulness. Sometimes it is because of our own lack of study. And therefore, we want to have a charitable attitude to all believers even those believers that might not necessarily agree with these doctrines that we are going to talk about it today and in the following weeks. Um, especially when, this, when the disagree- disagreements that we may have are on non-essential doctrines. So what do I mean by non-essential doctrines? Well, I mean doctrines that are secondary to the person of God and the gospel. So for example, to talk about a primary doctrine the Trinity is a primary and essential doctrine, right? God is triune, there's, uh, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a primary doctrine. Another primary doctrine is that salvation is through faith in Jesus by grace alone. That is an essential doctrine, right? If someone disagrees with that, we would respectfully disagree with them and and potentially even divide, right? If someone wants to do ministry with us, but they don't even believe that salvation is through faith in Jesus, it would be extremely difficult to do ministry together. But then secondary doctrines are things like the continuation or the cessation of some of the spiritual gifts, right? Some people believe that all of the spiritual gifts continue. Some people believe that some of them have ceased. And if we have disagreement about those, about those things, we are still able to partner together. We are still able to minister together. Of course, it affects the way that we do ministry. It affects the way that we do life, but we're not going to divide over those things. Another example of a secondary doctrine would be eschatology. That is the doctrine of the last things, the doctrine of the end times. 
We allow here for disagreement, even within our elder team, because we realize that the doctrine of the end times is a very complicated doctrine, right? It's in the Bible and we should do our very best to try to understand, but we also recognize that throughout the history of the church, there has been disagreement about, you know, the, the events surrounding the return of Jesus. Now, what is primary about eschatology is that Jesus is going to return to save his church in, 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 you know, in bodily form. He is going to return, right? If someone were to say, oh, Jesus already returned in spirit, then that, that would be a primary thing that we would say, mm, actually not. And we disagree with you and we cannot partner with you. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we have written down in our Kaleo documents, if someone wants to become a partner of Kaleo or a member of Kaleo, we say these doctrines that we are about to, to preach on, these are doctrines that we do not necessarily ask you to agree on, at least not all of them, but we do ask you to think about the fact that if you become a partner of Kaleo, you are going to be listening, you are going to be submitting yourselves to a leadership, to leaders who preach, who teach, and, to sh and who shepherd in accordance with these convictions. So with all of that said, today's focus, the doctrine that we are focusing on today is the theological conviction that God is the author of, of our salvation and therefore he gets all the glory. In other words, in our theological convictions page, uh, we refer to this as a God-centered understanding of the gospel a God-centered understanding of the gospel. So the bottom line, I'm going to tell you the bottom line before we even develop the whole thing. The bottom line is that since God is sovereign, God is the one who initiates, sustains, and consummates our salvation. And therefore, he is the one who gets all the glory. I'm going to say that again. Since God is sovereign, God is the one who initiates, sustains, and consummates our salvation. And therefore he is the one that gets all the glory. Now, I do wanna say one more thing about all of these doctrines that we will talk throughout this series, but particularly about this one. The purpose of doctrine is not that we congratulate ourselves, sit around and pat ourselves in the back and say, yes, we believe the right thing. We are so good. We believe the right thing. We can rest happy. No, that is not the purpose of doctrine. The purpose of doctrine is, is also not that we should feel superior uh, or better than others and, and judge and diminish those who disagree with us or those who do not hold to these doctrines. But rather the purpose of doctrine is that we would live lives that are pleasing to God. The purpose of these doctrines is that everything that we believe should affect the way that we live. And therefore, as we consider that salvation is a gift from God that he initiates, continues, and consummates, my prayer is that it would drive us to humility. It would drive us to worship and enjoyment of God. It would drive us to fervent evangelism, and it would drive us to a radical love for our neighbor our enemies included. So now getting to, this, getting to this particular theological distinctive that we have, 
If we want to arrive at a God-centered understanding of salvation, we first have to accept that everything is centered around God and not around man. So, do you remember who Galileo is? Galileo Galilei. In the early in the early 1600s, Galileo presented and defended defended a radical theory. It was radical at the time. To us, for us today, it's just it's just a fact. It's just what well, hopefully everyone believed it, but not everyone believes it. But he presented the theory of heliocentrism. In other words, that the Earth and all of the planets in the galaxy. Uh, uh, orbitate around the sun. At the time that he presented this doctrine, people actually believed, most people believed differently. Most people were geocentrists, meaning that they believed that everything turned around the earth. They believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And so the reason why I'm mentioning this is because in a very similar way, man, every person, every person who is born unfortunately, is born a, a uh, uh, man-centric person or an antro- anthropocentric person. In other words, believing that everything is, uh, that, that everything revolves around man. And therefore, if we believe that everything revolves around man, then we're going to organize our worldview, our beliefs, everything with that in mind, including God and including salvation. But what happens when you present the revolutionary theory or the revolutionary idea that actually everything revolves around God? That God, since he is the creator of the universe, that God, since he is infinite, since he existed even before uh, uh, everything was created, that he is not submitted to time or, or space or anything like that. Since God is God, therefore everything revolves around him. Well, if we believe that, then we are going to adapt the way that we live to that. We are going to adapt the way we understand theology around that. And one of the things that we're going to adapt is the way that we understand salvation, right? If we believe that man is at the center of the universe, then we're going to believe that salvation is solely and only for man. But if we believe that God is at the center of the universe, then we are going to believe that ultimately salvation is because God is the one who saves us, because God is the one who initiates our salvation. And ultimately our salvation brings glory to God. So if you want to know more about salvation, I encourage you to read the book of Romans. Now, let me warn you, this is a really hefty book. It is super intense, but I would encourage you to maybe this week just spend time reading through the book of Romans. Now, this is what happens to me every time I read the book of Romans. I read it. Well, before I read it, I'm like, man, I don't understand any of this stuff. Then I read it and I'm like, okay, I think I finally get it. You know, and now mind you, this is like, you know, the the 10th time I'm reading the book and I'm like, okay, I think this time I actually get it. But then immediately I'm like, no, this is This is well beyond myself. I'm reminded of my finiteness. I'm reminded that I'm not infinite, that I am not God. And I believe that that's partly what Paul is doing in writing the book of Romans. He is reminding us that we are not God, that God 
alone is God. And so, for example, in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, which should be on the screen, it says, so, you know, just to give you a little bit of context, Paul is talking about our salvation. Paul is, is actually has just spent 11 chapters talking about salvation. And this is one of his conclusions. He says, oh, the depth of the riches in wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So in other words, Paul is saying, God is way too wise for us. God is way too infinite. God is incredibly wise and knowledgeable. We cannot understand his judgments, right? We have some things that God has revealed to us, but ultimately we cannot, man cannot understand God completely. And I think that is good for us, right? If we could understand God perfectly, then God wouldn't be God, right? So it's good for us to be reminded that God is God and we are not. This is another thing that Paul tells us in uh, Romans chapter nine, verse 18 through 23. He is talking specifically about salvation. And he says this, he says, so then God, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And so the response to that is, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, if God is our maker, if God is our creator, does it make sense for us to respond back to God? and question him and say, hey, why did you do things this way? Absolutely not, right? It would be, it would be terrible. It would be, a, it would be sinful. It would be disrespectful to approach God and be like, hey, no, you can't do that. No, yes, he can. He is God. He created you. In other words, and this is something that we use often, God is sovereign. God is Sovereign. The, the, the fact that God is sovereign is something that we often say, but I think that sometimes we don't realize what it means or sometimes we are not consistent with what it means, right? To say that God is sovereign means that he is in absolute control of his universe. He is the ruler of everything, right? And I think if you, if you were to ask around, I think most Christians would agree with that. Most Christians would agree with the statement that God is sovereign, that he is the ruler, that he is in control. But once you start applying the doctrine of the sovereignty of God to the different aspects of 
our faith, the different aspects of, of our theology, especially when you start applying that and pressing into the doctrine of salvation, that's when we start running into problems. So for example, someone has said, I, I, you've probably heard this or, or maybe this is something that you were taught. Some people would say God's sovereignty is limited by human freedom. God's sovereignty is limited by human, by human freedom. But wouldn't it make more sense to say that man's freedom is limit, limited by God's sovereignty? Right? If we understand, if we, if, if we put God as the center of everything and not man, and if we ultimately believe that God is sovereign, then wouldn't it make more sense for us to say that our freedom is limited by God's sovereignty? Or let me quote uh, R.C. Sproul. I was reading one of his books and I found it very helpful. He says, our freedom is always and everywhere limited by God's sovereignty. God is free and we are free, but God is more free than we are. When our freedom bumps up against God's sovereignty, our freedom must yield. Now, before we move any further, Earlier, I mentioned that my desire is that learning these doctrines would lead us to humility and to worship. And so we have a great opportunity right here as we, as we think about God's sovereignty, as we think about God's power, as we think about the fact that everything is centered and revolves around God, we have a great example to humble ourselves and give God all the glory. And I think Job is exemplary here. So I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story of Job where he basically in one day lost everything that he had. And so Job is, is kind of a funny book because his friends spend chapters and chapters and chapters just trying to explain away what happened to him, right? And some would say, well, you know, you lost all of these things because you were sinful or you lost all of these things because I don't know, you didn't offer enough sacrifices. You know, it's, it's a very, very long conversation, but it's, it's, it's quite entertaining. Um, and then at the very end, God comes and he challenges. Well, you know, Job asks God like, hey, what, what happened? What's going on, right? He's trying to make sense of his own suffering in light of God's sovereignty. And the last part of the book is, is incredible because God goes on and on and on listing about all the things that he has made. He goes on telling Job who he is. And so after, after Job hears this, this is his response in Job uh, chapter 40. He has a couple of responses. First, he says, well, then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on, on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Right? When he is faced with the sovereignty of God, with the power of God, with, the, with how awesome God is, Job says, I can't, I can't respond to that. But God keeps on going. He says, no, it's almost like God is saying, no, 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 now you hear me up. You challenge me, now you're going to hear this. And so he goes on to tell him even more so about himself, about his glory. 
And this is Job's second response in chapter 42. He says, well, again, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. There was no response to his suffering other than God is God and you are not. And God has a greater plan. And of of course, we know from Romans 8 that all things work out for the good of those who love God. But ultimately, the greatest purpose of God is to glorify himself. And so this should drive us to humility. This should drive us to worship of him, right? We should, we should humble ourselves and declare that God is God and we are not, that the world revolves around God and not us. All right, so moving on, uh, we're gonna talk about three things that, uh, uh, or, or three aspects of our salvation, which I mentioned at the beginning. One is that if God is sovereign, God is the one who initiates our salvation. The second one is if God is sovereign, God is the one who sustains our salvation. And then the last one is that if God is sovereign, God is the one who consummates our salvation. So for the first one, there's a few implications. Uh, The first one is that he chose us before the foundation of the world to be saved and adopted as his children. God is the one who chose us. God is the one who saved us. God is the one who initiates our salvation. And he initiated it before the foundation of the world. That is amazing. It it was not God, you know, our salvation was not God's plan B. Our salvation was not God adjusting to the circumstances, but God, before he even created the world, before the ages began, the triune God set out to save us. Remember, as we were reading, uh, as we were studying the letter to the Ephesians in the first chapter, we saw that it says, you know, that God chose us before the foundation of the world. In 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9, this is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. And now listen to this, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Notice that God didn't choose us or call us because of our works, right? It's not like he looked into the future and saw that we were gonna do good works or that we were gonna choose him. And then he said, okay, I'm gonna choose them. Remember that God is outside of time. He chose us because of his purpose and grace. Remember the words of Job, no one can thwart God's plan, God's purpose. Well, this was his purpose. His purpose was to save us. Before we could do anything good or bad, 
before we could choose him, before anything, he elected us for salvation. Number two, when he saved us, or number two, he saved us when we were dead. We can say that God is the one who initiates our salvation because we were dead when God saved us. There was absolutely nothing that we could do in our own strength. Once again, remember Ephesians. I'm, I'm quoting Ephesians because that's, you know, that's a book that we have the most fresh in our minds. But remember in Ephesians chapter two, how it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. God made us alive. God saved us when we were dead, when we were his enemies, when we were sinners. Romans 5.10, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was nothing we could have done to save ourselves if God had not miraculously and graciously intervened to give us life. We could have not saved ourselves by our own merit or by our own power because sin makes everyone dead and powerless. But God in his mercy and in his great love, he saved us. Notice what Jesus tells the Pharisees in John 6, verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one is able to come to God unless the father himself, or sorry, no one is able to come to Jesus unless the father himself is the one bringing him to Jesus. That's how dependent we are on God for our salvation. And then number three on this point is that, you know, since God is the one who initiates our salvation, this should lead us to worship and enjoyment of God and this should lead us to fervent evangelism and a radical love for our neighbor. Now, let me explain those things in, in a little bit more detail. Number one, knowing that God is the one who saves us, right? Knowing that God is the one who initiates our salvation should lead us to worship of God, right? Knowing that God in his sovereignty elected us to be saved and took the initiative to save us and took all the necessary steps to bring us out of the muck and make us alive with Christ and seat us at the right hand, at his right hand with Christ, that should lead us to worship, right? So on the first hand, yes, it leads us to humility. But at the same time, we cannot, you know, we can't stay depressed and, and, and self-deprecated when we know where God has brought us. He brought us from the pit and he saved us. We belong to him. We are his adopted children. God saved us, yes, for his glory, but he saved us because of the love with which he loves us. So we should worship God for that. For that, All of our lives should be lives of worship. The next thing that I said was, this should lead us to fervent evangelism. Now, this might be, uh, this might be a tricky one because I know that... Um, I know that when we talk about the idea of God electing people, sometimes the wrong conclusion is, well, if God elects people, then why preach the gospel? Right? So I'm going to leave you with that for a second while I drink water. Just 
ponder that. Well, I would say it's all the opposite. If we rightly understand the doctrine of election, if we rightly understand that God is the one that chooses people and that God is the one that brings people from the muck when they were dead, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, then instead of becoming fatalistic and refuse to preach the gospel, we should become the most evangelistic people of all because we should know that the outcome of our evangelism is secure. So let me give you an example. When Paul is in Corinth, he's probably very discouraged by this point because he keeps getting rejected in every synagogue that he goes. And so this is what Paul tells him. Sorry, this is what God tells Paul in Acts 18. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now, of course, this, this particular word was given specifically to Paul. So I don't think that we need to take that and say, oh, good, no one is going to attack us and, you know, everything is going to go well for us. No, that was specific to Paul. But one thing that we gather from here is that if God had people in Corinth that he had already uh, uh, chosen that he had already elected so that when Paul would go and preach the gospel to them, they would repent. I think we could have the assurance that God already has people here on the harbor in Aberdeen, Hoquiam, Elma, wherever it is that you live, that he has already elected and are just waiting for us to go and preach the gospel. And so we should be the most bold evangelists of all because we know that if God has already chosen people, the outcome is secure. People will turn to Christ. And I think this is why Paul could write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 8 through 10. 2 Timothy 8 through 10. There we go. That's okay. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Are you hearing this? Paul is in prison because of his preaching of the gospel. He's writing to Timothy. He's telling him, you know, remain firm in the gospel. Do not be discouraged about me being here in, in, uh, in prison. And he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain salvation. He's saying the elect who are out there who have not heard the gospel message yet, I endure all things for their sake. And so, do, you know, do you see where I'm going? If we believe that God chooses people for salvation, if we believe that God is the one that initiates people's salvation, and if we believe that God uses the preaching of the gospel as the means to save people, then we are going to be the most evangelistic people of all.
And then the other implication that I had mentioned was that this should drive us to a radical love for our neighbors, even our enemies. We do not know who God will save, right? That ultimately belongs to God. And therefore our duty is to preach the gospel to all, right? We do not get to decide who is worthy of hearing the gospel and who is not, right? That's what Jonah, Jonah thought. He thought that he could determine who was worthy of hearing the gospel. Well, it didn't go great for Jonah, did it? At least the first time when he went, it was the most successful sermon ever preached, right? The whole city was converted. So we do not get to determine who is worthy of salvation. Our job is to preach the gospel. Our job is not to judge. God is the judge. We are not the judge. Our job is to preach the gospel. Now think about this for a moment. If God's love for us is an eternal choice that he made before the foundation of the world, this means that we as his creatures, right? Because we are, we are created in his image. We can decide to love people. Right? If God, chose to, if God chose to love us before the foundation of the world, this means that love is not a feeling that we can't help. Right? That's, what, that's what the definition of the world. I feel like the world understands love as this feeling that you just can't, can't help. Right? You fall in love. You can't help but fall in love. But if we understand love as a choice, then we can, choice, we can choose to love people. We can choose to love even our enemies. We can choose to love those who don't look like us, those who don't think like us. We can choose to love even those who are rejecting Christ. Because ultimately only God knows if they will be saved or not, if they will repent or not. And then think about this. God loved us while we were still sinners while we were still dead, while we were still his enemies. Therefore, we should most definitely love even our enemies. All right, so we're going to move on to the next couple of points. These are going to go a little bit faster because I already mentioned uh, the implications. But the second point here is that God is the one that sustains our salvation. God is the one that makes sure that we are in him. God is the one who makes sure that we do not lose the salvation that he himself initiated. So when you, you know, when you want to become a partner of Kaleo or just if you look at our website, you will see in our theological uh, convictions page, when we're talking about this particular point, uh, the gospel is defined like this. The gospel is the good news of what God has graciously accomplished for sinners in and through the sinless life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, and is applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So when we receive the gospel, when we hear the gospel, when we believe it, that's the moment when we are saved, right? Remember Ephesians 1.13, Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he says, in him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, right? So he is saying the moment you heard the gospel, the moment you believe in the gospel, the moment you received this gospel, that's when you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the gospel is, you know, the, the point of entry, if you will, but at the same time, the gospel, it's not only the point of entry, but it's also the continuation of our salvation. It's also ultimately the, con the consummation of our salvation. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, right, in the past, in which you stand in the present, and by which you are being saved in the present and, and you know, kind of already pointing to the future, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. God saves us through the gospel. God is saving us through the gospel as we stand in the gospel, and God will save us through the gospel as we hold fast to the gospel. Now, if we ultimately believe that God is the one in charge of our salvation from beginning to end, this means that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Absolutely nothing, right? Paul says in Romans 8, 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because our salvation is dependent on God, there is nothing that can separate us from God. There is nothing that can make us uh, 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 lose the salvation that God initiated, right? If salvation were up to me, I would lose it right away. But because God is the one who saves us, God is the one who initiates our salvation, who continues our salvation and who consummates our salvation, we can have assurance that the work that he began in us, he will complete it. This also means that if God is in charge of our salvation from beginning to end, God is the one who sanctifies us. Now, I am not saying that we are not responsible to be sanctified. I am not saying that we are not responsible to seek to be holy, right? We have, we have very clear commands in scripture uh, that we should be holy, that we should seek our sanctification. It even says that we should work out our own salvation. But ultimately what I'm saying is that even in our own obedience to God after he saves us, after he initiates that salvation, there is not any single point in which we can boast and say, look, this is what I did, right? We can take courage and say, look, the steps that by the grace of God I am taking, but ultimately God is the one in charge of our sanctification. God didn't, call us and save us be, because we were so smart or because we belong to a special class or, or whatever. He saves us because of his glory and therefore no one can boast. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 26. 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And now listen to this particular verse where it talks about Jesus being our, sanctifi sancti being our sanctification. Verse 30, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Can any of us boast that through our wisdom, we believed in God? No, Jesus is our wisdom. Can any of us boast that we have been justified by our own merits? No, Jesus is our righteousness. Can any of us then boast in saying, oh, look at me, I'm the one sanctifying myself and look at how much I'm growing by my efforts. Jesus is our sanctification. And in the future, will any of us be able to say, wow, I made it. I redeemed myself because of how good I was. No. God, Jesus is our redemption. Now, lastly, speaking about our future salvation, God is the one who consummates our salvation. Our salvation will be consummated or will be finalized when Jesus returns to save his church and judge those who continue in unrepentance. Once again, pointing back to Ephesians, remember that Paul talks about the Holy Spirit as being the guarantee of our inheritance. We will receive our full inheritance when Jesus comes back. But right now, we do not have that full inheritance, right? It is, it is incredible. It is, it is a, a, a great thing to have the Holy Spirit in us and to have a guarantee of our inheritance and to enjoy the salvation that God has given us But at the same time, we need to remember that this is not the end. This is not it, right? We still struggle with sin. We still struggle with pride. We still struggle with, with uh, weakness. We struggle with sickness. We struggle with so many things. <laughs> But when Christ returns, he will complete our salvation. We will receive the full inheritance. What we have right now is amazing, but what we will have then when Christ consummates our salvation will be unfathomable. And finally, God himself is our salvation, right? Going back to this idea of God being at the center of everything. If God is the center of everything, then it only makes sense that the greatest gift of salvation is God himself, right? A lot of the times people think of salvation as just kind of, you know, getting out of hell. And sure, it's amazing to get out of hell. 
But that is not the point. The point of being saved, the point of our salvation is to enjoy an in, uninterrupted relationship with God, our creator. The point of salvation is that we would finally do the thing that we were created to do, which is to glorify God, to enjoy God, to be with God. He is our inheritance. Right? If you have a men-centered understanding of salvation, then you think more of, oh, you know, what do I get out of it? Or, or what do I escape? But if you have a God-centered understanding of salvation, then you realize that God himself is the greatest gift of that salvation. And that's why we can join Paul in declaring in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Because our, because our citizenship is in heaven, because we await a savior in heaven, because he will transform our lowly body to be a glorious body, because we will be with him, we have to stand firm in the Lord. So as we celebrate communion, let us remember that God in his sovereignty and because of his love is the one who initiated our salvation God is the one who sustains our salvation. God is the one who will consummate our salvation. And so let us worship him in humbleness and let us celebrate the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I want to finish this sermon and get us into communion by reading 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we, when we drink from the cup, when we eat the bread, we are proclaiming the gospel. We are proclaiming that God is at the center of, at the center of everything and that God is the one completely in charge of our salvation and we entrust ourselves to his grace and his mercy. Let's pray. God, we worship you. You are sovereign and we are not. And we praise you that in your mercy, 
you are the one who saved us. I pray that this would affect the way that we live. I pray that we would be the most evangelistic of all people, the most loving of all people, the most humble of all people, because we understand that you saved us by your mercy, not because of everything, not because of anything that we've done. Lord God, please glorify your name. And as we remember the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, I pray that our minds would be centered on you, that we would, we would give you glory, that we would declare the death of our Lord Jesus until he returns. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.